celebrate what God is doing in people's lives here among us. Um, just a real joy. And, and I don't think it's, I think it's really good for us just to stop and just remember God's kindness to us. You know, even the fact that we get to gather here this morning and God speaks and we get to hear his word. And he's just like this like loving father that kind of keeps calling like weekly family meetings together just to remind us of who he is and his love and to teach us what it means to be his children. And as we come to the end of our series here in Exodus, I think that image of God as a father is a really good one because he actually describes himself that way. And he says that, that Israel, his people, are, are his firstborn son, his beloved child. And as a good father, he, he loves them and shows his love for them. And he also uh, has been teaching them what it means to live as his beloved children and providing for them all along the way. And yet we saw a couple of weeks ago that with all of that love that he gave them, there was this massive rebellion and rejection of him as their good father with the episode of the golden calf. And thankfully, God loves mercy and he loves to show forgiveness. And so he doesn't bring the judgment they deserve on them. And, and what I've been learning in parenting a lot is that so often the very moments when disobedience springs up is the best teaching moments. That, that my kids get to learn something about me, that they hopefully see in me a dad that still loves them precisely in the middle of their disobeying. I want them to, to learn that more. But also it becomes a learning opportunity to learn about like what doesn't work and what works well. And so our family's been talking about kind of this idea of do-overs, of helping them see their hearts and see what's off and then inviting them to kind of like redo the situation, but in a healthy way. So they learn like the, the good rhythms of life. And I think God's doing the same thing actually in Exodus 34 with his people here. He wants them to, to see that who he is, that he is a God that is still loving towards them. He loves them. And he wants to invite them, so to speak, into a covenant do-over. A do-over of this initial ceremony that made them his people. And so this morning we're just going to see God really kind of reveal who he is to them and invite them into rhythms of remembrance. And then we'll look briefly at the very end of his purpose in that is transformation and change. So let me pray and ask God to be at work among us. Father, I just pray this morning that you would indeed be a good father and speak through me a weak vessel and give us all ears to hear, to see you as you really are and to love you. So be with us now. Amen. Let me pick up the story in Exodus 34. And as I read it, listen to just the repetition that maybe you've heard in previous chapters and even just the repetition of, of the first times. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Did you hear that? Three times in five verses we hear like the first ones. 
And if you were to go back to Exodus 19 and 24, the description of Moses' first kind of preparation journey up the mountain, you, you'd hear so much similar from the command of this mountain is holy place now, so not even the animals can be here. Or the command to Moses alone to go up, or the description of God meeting him as like in a cloud. Or even actually at the very end of verse 28, in this chapter we read that, so he, Moses, was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Forty days and forty nights, just like the first time. I hope you hear through that God just kind of inviting his people into a second chance, because he's a God of second chances, and third, and fourth, and fifth. He's kind that way. And he's inviting them to kind of experience it right. Because I'm, I'm sure you can think with me about a time where maybe a friend invited you to, into some kind of experience. Maybe it was like, hey, you got to check out this really cool new restaurant. And you go there and you think the food's terrible, right? Or maybe they're like, hey, come camping with me. It'll be great. And it rains all week and you hate it, all right? And what happens is psychologically in your brain, you're like, I will never do that experience again, right? But maybe your friend's able to convince you to try it a second time. And you go back, and this time, you have a good experience. What's going to happen? You're going to be more willing to go there again, right? Like, your thinking and feeling about that has changed. And this is a good illustration of what God's doing here. He's, he knows that the first time around they did this, it led in, ended in disaster. And he's now giving his people a chance to re-experience Moses going up the mountain, hearing from God, coming down, and the people meeting with him. But this time, done right a positive experience. Because after all, God knows how our brains work because he made us. And he wants to invite us into that. But here, there's something beautiful. He, he adds a little bit more of himself. Moses had said, God, show me yourself. Show me what you're like. And so here in verses six and seven, we see God doing just that. It says, the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. See, God starts out and he says, the Lord, the Lord, and and that's the the Jews used to write the Lord instead of God's actual name because they didn't want to accidentally misuse it. But behind those capital letters of Lord stands his name, Yahweh. The I am. It means the God who is what he is, who was what he was, and who will be what he will be. Or you could almost translate it, the unchanging one. The unchanging one. The unchanging one. He starts there because it's so important, right? Because if God on Tuesday was good, but on Friday went bad, that would be disastrous, right? You can't count on a friend who one day will help you and the next day can't care anything about you. That's not a friend you can depend on. So God starts out by saying, I am unchanging, Moses. Repeats it twice. And what is this unchanging God like? He's merciful and gracious. The word merciful is sometimes translated compassionate. It's this idea of deep in his gut, God loves to show kindness. And not because of something in us, but just because of who he is. And this idea of grace meaning undeserved kindness. He just wants to pour out kindness and we don't have to earn it or deserve it. 
And because he's gracious and merciful, he's slow to anger. He's not quick to drop the hammer. He's not quick to bring judgment. No, because he's slow to anger, he loves to forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. God would rather his people run to him. He has open arms so they can experience forgiveness and love instead of judgment. And God, and we also hear, abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. That, that word steadfast love is the idea of covenant love. And that word covenant isn't one we kind of use a lot in our culture anymore, but it's this idea of a, a binding relational agreement. And you see that in marriage, right? You, you make a covenant to your spouse. And the, and the traditional vows, right, say like, you know, do you take so-and-so to be your lawfully wedded spouse? To have and to hold in richer or poorer, in sickness and health, for better or worse, till death do us part and holding to no other. That's steadfast love through thick and thin. And God says, I abound in that kind of love. Like it overflows, it just bubbles out over him into all of his relationships. That's what he's like. And if that is what God is like, don't you want to be in relationship with him? Isn't that the God we deep down want to know and be known by? A God who's like this? And we keep reading in verse 7. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? Do you ever read those words sometimes wish couldn't we just have skipped that last half of the verse? Like, it sounded so nice up to that point. Like, couldn't we have just left that little bit out, God? It makes us uncomfortable. But actually, this is good news if we understand it rightly. We just need to clear up some things. Maybe the first thing you're wondering is, why does it seem like the the sins of the Father are punished on the succeeding generations? That, That doesn't seem fair. Well, actually, God agrees with you. Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, God says this, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So what's God getting at here? If it's not that you're punished for your father's sin or parent's sin, what's he getting at? Well, I think it's so easy for us as an individualist North American culture to forget that sin has ripple effects. It's never just individual. And we see it, right? The angry, alcoholic dad often produces angry, alcoholic kids. Sadly, the abuser, the abused often becomes the abuser. Not always, but often. And you see just how sin has these ripple effects that hurts generations. And when we see that, we should know when when we're interacting with people, man, like, we should have mercy and compassion on them because we've all grown up in imperfect homes. And yet at the same time, God is saying, yet they won't be punished for their dad's sin, but if they choose to walk in the same footsteps and commit the same sin, they will still be held guilty. I can't let any sin go. And that's actually a good thing. We... we, deep down want a God that doesn't let the bad guys get away with it, right? And that's why all the, like, the action, revenge movies sit so well, because we deep down know it's not right 
for the guilty to go free. I was chatting with a friend recently who was talking about how they, they went to Costco recently. This is, and uh, they realized accidentally they'd grabbed their wife's Costco membership card and not their own. So when they got to the cash, it was kind of this brouhaha mix-up thing. And later he was chatting with a manager, kind of like processing it. And the manager was like, look, the reason why we're such a stickler for the rules here is because if we don't, the members will complain a lot. Because the members are saying, wait a minute, if we paid for a membership, then why should somebody else get in and get all these benefits, right? And do you hear what, what deep down they want in their heart is, I just want what's fair. I just want what's fair. Where does that desire come from? It comes from God who made us. We're made in his image and he loves justice. See, sometimes I think we, when we think about the gospel or grace, we think that God's ways are justice minus grace. As if we can sweep justice away and just get grace instead. But actually, God's ways are justice plus grace. Nothing gets swept under the rug, but he goes above and beyond justice to bring grace and love. And it's sometimes hard for, hard for our brains to get our heads around it because we can't actually see that in this world. The only spot you see that lived out is in Jesus, who took all the justice so that God could give above and beyond the love and grace to the guilty. That's the beauty of the gospel. And when we see God rightly in this way, God of both love and justice, man, the only right response is what Moses does in verse eight. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. When you see God, like what you realize is I am not like you. You are awesome and great and perfect and I am none of the above. And so I just want to acknowledge that verbally. That's what worship is. And that's why we start all of our services with a call to worship. We want to come in and say, let's get our eyes right away up on who God is. That's where we start. And when that happens, the right response continues in verse 9. And Moses said, if now I found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. See, you can feel what Moses is feeling, right? Like, God, you said... You show forgiveness and love, but you don't clear the guilty. So if I see the tension between these two things, will you please pick the mercy and forgiveness option? I like that one better. Right? That's what he's doing. He's confessing. It's not because we deserve it, God. No, we're a stiff-necked people. We're like this horse or a donkey that's like, no, I'm not going to do what you want. We've got to acknowledge that. And yet he says... Would you pardon us? We admit we're messed up, we're broken, we're rebellious, we're hard-hearted, but would you forgive God? Would you go amongst us? That's why we have confession every week here because we want to slow down and remember this. And we always have a word of assurance because that's what God does. When we come to him in confession, he meets us with this beautiful word. Look at verse 10. And he, that's God now, said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Just think, a couple of chapters ago, God was saying, You guys have sinned, I'm going to wipe you out. 
in judgment that's just, it's fair. And then God's like, maybe I just won't go with you. And now here he's saying, behold, I'm making a covenant. I'm remaking you mine. You're gonna be my people even in the midst of your sin. See, God doesn't just say he's a gracious and merciful God. He shows it in his actions. That's, that's what we see. God's, God's wanting to use precisely in the middle of sin and disobedience of his people the opportunity to show them, this is what I'm like. I'm a God who loves to save and forgive. And we now, this side of the cross, see so clearly the cost of that love. It's the cost of God the Father sending his son to die. It's the cost of the son willingly laying down his life. So he invites us all to respond like Moses in worship, calling out our need for him and hearing his word of love over us. That's how we get in relationship with him. That's what he invites us to, not just in one moment, but every day, to come to him, to see him as he is, to acknowledge our need and hear his love for us in Jesus. But how do we continue in relationship when it seems like we're so tempted to go back to old rhythms, old patterns? Well, that's why God doesn't just reveal himself, but he gives us rhythms of remembering. See, if I was to say right now, and I will, don't think of a pink elephant. What just happened? You all thought of a pink elephant, and then you tried not to think about the pink elephant, right? Like, it doesn't work to just say, don't think of something. It doesn't work to go up to someone who's struggling and say, just stop it. I mean, just stop it. It doesn't work, right? You, you can't just cut that off. You actually have to replace it with new thoughts. You have to replace old habits with new habits, with new rhythms. Old loves get replaced by new loves. And so we engage in rhythms to help us with that, to, to carve out new pathways. That's why we have the same structure or our service every week, call to worship confession, assurance of God's love, sitting under God's word together, knowing that his word's more important than ours, his ideas and thoughts are more important than ours, tasting his grace in communion and then being sent out. Every week, over and over and over and over and over again. Why? So hopefully that becomes our default rhythm in all of life, every day of the week. To see God, to see our need for him, and to see the beauty of Jesus and be sent. That should be all of our life, right? These rhythms, but God first calls people to leave old rhythms before jumping to new ones. So look at verse 11. He says, observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of this sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal." passage raises lots of questions, doesn't it? I mean, 
what, what's up with this whole, like, it seems like God doesn't like these other ethnicities. What's going on with that? And, and God, verse 14, jealous? I thought, I thought jealousy was a bad thing. Well, it can be. What we normally mean by jealousy is wanting something badly that doesn't belong to you, right? It's like you're jealous for your neighbor's vacation or for your neighbor's new car. But there's another way of thinking about jealousy. It's wanting what's rightly yours. So imagine with me a newly married couple and it comes time for the one-year anniversary. The husband goes to the wife and says, hey, um, I'm actually, there's this coworker I'm gonna take to Europe for our anniversary. Probably would not go over well, right? I'm guessing the wife would be just a little bit ticked and rightly so. Now, if she like punched him, that would be sinning. That would be bad. But there is a right response of saying like, this isn't right. You made promises to me. I made promises to you. I just want you to be faithful to what you promised. That is a good jealousy. That's right. And that's what God is saying here. And he uses this same metaphor of marriage. Because he says in verse 17, you know, don't make any other gods of cast metal. And he uses this analogy of sleeping around, of playing the whore when his people worship other gods. He says, you chose to be in relationship with me. You, you, can't, you can't sleep around on me. We made promises to each other to be in relationship together. And so we see that this actually is not an ethnic thing. God loves all ethnicities. It's a worship thing that's going on here. He's saying, I want you to worship me and me alone. So there's no problems with mixed marriages. In fact, in the Bible, there's several. And they're beautiful examples. So Ruth the Moabite who marries Boaz, an Israelite. But Ruth worshiped the Lord. That's why it worked, because they're worshiping the same God. And you can see how the danger that he says about in verse 16 is you can imagine a scenario where if you start to get intermingled too closely, maybe an Israelite dad has a son, marry someone else, and now it's time for a harvest, and the rains aren't falling like maybe they need to in a certain season, and this other foreigner comes in and says, well, you know, back in my country, what we do is when the rain's not coming, we do this worship ceremony to this God, and then the rain always comes. And you could see how maybe the son goes, well, I, I love my wife, and I like her, and so it can't be that bad, and he goes along with it. And suddenly, now, he's not worshiping the true God anymore. He's fallen into false worship. It's like the recovering alcoholic Recovering alcoholic tends to avoid bars, right? It's not a good idea if you're trying not to get drunk to show up at a bar. And so they, they try to avoid that, right? And create new rhythms and new habits. And God is saying to his people, look, you were in Egypt with many false gods, probably worshiping them there. You guys are recovering false worshipers. It's probably a good description for all of us. We are recovering false worshipers. Why would you go straight to the place that engages in false worship. For a season, you might need to stay away from that so you can worship rightly. You need new habits. And so God gives them some new habits. In verses 18 following, he, he lays out three kind of yearly feasts as habits, as rhythms to remember. And then in verses 25 to 26, he gives kind of three commands that circle back to those three feasts and addresses ways they could go wrong. And so he starts out in verse 18 with, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. 
Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed the month of Abib. From the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep. The firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. So God wants to give his people Israel saying, remember, you left Egypt. When you left Egypt, a lamb had to die to save your firstborn. So every year you're going to remember that. And actually every time a firstborn is born, you have to do that to remember the cost of you being freed. And remember too that this Passover time, then the next seven days is this feast of unleavened bread where you don't eat any bread with leaven in it to remember that when God took us out of Egypt, we didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise. We took it and we ran. And you're going to remember, you're going to literally taste the difference in the bread every year around that time for a week to remember what I did for you. In verse 25, he circles around and says, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until the morning. He says, don't go out of what I've commanded you to do in this rhythm. So in the Passover feast, when they killed the lamb and sacrificed it, they would eat it. And you can maybe imagine, it's like, man, that was a really yummy tasting lamb and there's some leftovers. Maybe we can have it tomorrow night for supper. And God's like, no. When you left Egypt, you burned everything that was left and you do it the same way every year to remember. Remember what I did for you. Then he gives them in verse 22, the feast of weeks, also called Pentecost. You shall observe it, the first fruits of wheat harvest. He's saying, you're gonna remember when you're in the wilderness, you had nothing and I provided everything for you. So when your harvest comes in, you're gonna give the first of it back to me as a sign of gratefulness to remember that all you have was from me and I provide for you. And so in verse 26, he comes around and says, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. Don't skimp here. Don't just give the leftovers. Give the first and the best. Because not only will it help you remember all that I've done provide for you, it will train your heart to love me and remember how good I am. When you give the leftovers, you're teaching yourself that it doesn't matter. So give the best. And he gives a third feast, also in verse 22, the feast of ingathering or the feast of booze at the year's end. And they would literally build a little booze to kind of live in, to remember how in the wilderness years they didn't have a home. So think about that. I mean, with our education, a lot of times these days focusing on not just hearing, but doing Imagine the rhythm of once a year leaving your comfortable house and living again in a little tent-like structure to remember this is what it was like back in the day. God took care of us. He's so good. And so then we come to verse 26, the last command to see like, well, how could this go wrong? And you read, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. How many of you have ever read that and thought, what? is going on in this verse, right? I mean, like, what? I, I don't get that. This sounds so strange. It's not what I expected. Like, maybe, like, I would have expected a command of, like, don't make your booze too nice. Remember, it was kind of rough back then. But we're talking about a young goat and its mother's milk. I think it is really key to see that this probably has to do with this feast. Some way they would go off at this feast because it fits that way in the structure. And to be honest, I don't know why they shouldn't boil a young goat and its mother's milk. There's lots of conjectures out there. You can read about it. There's different ideas. 
popular one is like, maybe this seemed to be something that the other religions did at this time of year when, when the goats were, were born, that somehow was some kind of false worship. But whatever exactly the reason why is off, the point God's saying is, you have to do worship my way. You can't corrupt it and do it your way. It's the only way these rhythms will work. And you see in verse 23, it says, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. And not just the men came, but he's singling out the men. And he's saying, three times a year, you're gonna stop and come, eventually come to Jerusalem to remember. Kind of like what we do on July 4th, Memorial Day, right? We stop. We remember the history of this country, the cost paid, and it's meant to stir up gratitude in our hearts. Right? And that's what God's doing here with his people. He's giving them these rhythms to remember, and the rhythms teach them something. So even in verse 21, we look at the weekly, one weekly rhythm he gives them here. He says, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest in plowing time and in harvest. Now, if you come from a more of a farming background, you know that plowing time and harvest time are the two busiest times of the, the year. It's like, 16-hour day, sun up to sundown. You work hard, no breaks. Like, get after it, right? Because you got to get the harvest in. And God says to his people, even then, you stop. Why? Because he wants to teach them that actually he'll provide, that he's good. And if they ignore these rhythms, what they're training themselves in is that actually everything depends on me. That's why I can't stop. But when we stop, we actually train ourselves to remember Oh yeah, I'm not in control. The world will run without me. God's good. He'll take care of me. And so even though these exact rhythms change a little bit in the New Testament era, the pattern of weekly rhythms is still good. The author of Hebrews reminds the Christians saying, don't forget to gather weekly together. Don't, don't forget to gather together and, and worship and hear God's word and, and taste his grace in communion. And pray together. It's, it's good. We, we need that. It's still good to rest weekly and remember we're not God. I don't think the day matters anymore, but it's still good to rest weekly. It's still good that when we, we get something to give the first and the best back to God. Say, this is all from you, God. And I want to I remind myself of that and give some of it back for your kingdom work and for the needs of the saints. And as we do that, we train our hearts. I think about my own parents. Um, so I'm from Canada, and so I grew up playing hockey, which is the best sport in the world, um, so you know. Um, but I grew up playing hockey. And my parents didn't mind if I played on Sunday later in the day. For them, like, hey, that's, you enjoy it. But they always said, you can't play during the time we gather with God's people. It's not okay. Gathering with God's people matters more. So I remember our team, we had been terrible for a couple of years, and we finally made it to the playoffs and the first playoff game fell on Sunday morning. My parents were like, no, we're gathering with God's people. I don't regret that. I'm so thankful for that decision. You know why? Because my parents showed me and taught me that gathering with God's people was the most important thing. And that communicated to me way more than any words they could have said. Their consistent, faithful rhythms they put in place. Or when my dad taught me about finances and said, we give the first and the best to God. We don't wait for the leftovers because we want to, sh to be responding in gratefulness and we'll see God provide. And I saw my parents modeling that. 
It's like, wow. Those values have sunk deep into my hearts, not because of a speech they gave, but because they modeled it. What are your rhythms? What are the rhythms in your life, in your home? If someone was to look at the rhythms of your week, of your year, are they just the rhythms of the culture? Or are they rhythms that incline your heart to love and treasure Jesus more? That'd be a good question to think about, wouldn't it? What are your rhythms? Don't view these as burdens or responsibilities. They're opportunities for you to taste God's goodness and kindness to you. There's opportunities when you open your Bible, not just to check it off, but to encounter his grace for you. Because if we sow a thought, we reap an action. If we sow an action, you reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you reap a character. If you sow a character, you reap a destiny. God knows that. That's why he's given us these rhythms to soak us in seeing him rightly. And what's his purpose? Just to look briefly at the end here. He wants us to be transformed. Look at verses 29 to 35 with me. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Moses sees God the clearest, and literally, you could see the difference that encountering God made in his life. The glory of God shone from him. And I don't know what that's like, but that sounds pretty amazing and fearful. It's that the people were scared, right? They're not used to seeing glory, but at the same time as this beautiful reminder that God hadn't left them. His glory would stay with them. He hadn't left them. But it was just Moses. And after he would share with the people God's words, he'd put the veil back up. It was just short glimpses through one person but this is what's amazing about Jesus. Second Corinthians 4, Paul says this, For God who, set light, who, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now his glory is seen in Jesus. And what that means, he says earlier in chapter 3, verse 18, is, and we all, not Moses anymore only, not just the leaders, not just the pastors, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. See, God is saying, I want you to see me in Jesus and be changed. And how do we see God? How do we see the face of Jesus? In the ordinary, mundane rhythms of gathering as a body taking communion, being in the word, prayer. All of those moments as ordinary 
as routine as they seem, are actually opportunities to have our hearts retuned to see Jesus and to be changed. That's what God's inviting us into. And not so that we can put up a veil, but so that the whole world can see the difference that Jesus makes. And some will be scared of that. They won't like what they see. They'll want to run away from the glory. But some will see and say, there's something different about you. What, what is it? And we get to say, it's Jesus. Just to briefly close with this sort of my own life to try to illustrate this. I remember a couple of months ago, driving to church, got into an argument with my wife, got angry with her. And I come in, you know, and bustling the kids in and music begins and my heart's just like hard. I'm just holding on to this anger. And then Zach, one of the other pastors, opens God's word that morning in the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. And faithfully shows us that Jesus says, actually, if you're angry with someone sinfully, it's the same thing as murdering them. And all of a sudden, God breaks through my hard heart. And I'm like, oh, the problem is not my wife, it's me. My sin. And so as the musicians of service come, came forward later to prepare for communion, I, I lean over to Heather. And I'm just like, I just need to say I'm sorry. This was me this morning. It's my sin. Would you forgive me? And she graciously forgives me. And I walk down the side aisle and I grab ordinary flatbread. Bought it at a grocery store. Dip it in ordinary grape juice. But as I taste it, what I encounter is the beautiful truth that I don't deserve to be in Jesus' family, but I still get to be in anyways. I'm a murderer. Jesus still welcomes me. And I'm transformed to be a different kind of husband, a different kind of dad, different kind of man. And we constantly need that retuning of our hearts. So are you leaning into seeing God and the rhythms he's given for his glory and also your good? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you do show yourself to us and you are so gracious and kind. I pray that all of us this morning would see you and seeing you be changed. Help us to walk out the rhythms you've given us so we can taste your grace and love on an ongoing basis and be ongoingly transformed from one degree of glory to another until that day when you come back and make us what we're meant to be. Pray us in your name. Amen.